This week on Political Research Digest, connecting issue positions to candidates and causes. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. Citizens have opinions on public policy issues and also have to make choices about which political candidates or causes to support. But how do they match their issue positions to candidates and interest groups, and how well do their choices line up with their professed views? I talked to Cheryl Boudreaux of the University of California, Davis, about her research helping voters find the candidate that supports their views. In a new article with Christopher Elmendorf and Scott McKenzie, Roadmaps to Representation, published in Political Behavior, Boudreaux finds that low-information voters can utilize everything from party endorsements to voter guides to pictures of an ideological spectrum to match their views to a candidate. But perhaps the policy views people articulate in surveys are not the same as how they act in the political arena. I also talked to Nicholas Haas of New York University about his new article with Rebecca Morton, Saying Versus Doing, published in Public Choice. They ask citizens about their policy views, but then ask them to donate to opposing interest groups lobbying on the same issues finding that not everyone backs up their expressed view once dollars are at stake. Political scientists often assume that voters lack knowledge and interest in non-presidential politics. But Cheryl Boudreaux says they just need the information to connect their views to the candidates. The conventional wisdom about voting behavior, especially in local elections like the one we study, is that voters are pretty uninterested in these elections and that they're not capable of making informed decisions. And so, so I think that's the conventional wisdom. And I think that what our study shows is that voters, if you give them certain kinds of information, like political party endorsements or nonpartisan voter guides, that they actually can use this information and that they're actually interested in using it. The conventional wisdom, I think, paints a pretty dark picture about citizen competence in these kinds of low information local elections. And what our study suggests is that voters can, in fact, be informed and are willing to be informed. It's just a matter of getting the information to them. They found that voters can make reasonable decisions based on issues, even in local elections. So this is a study of voting behavior in local elections which a lot of people have suggested are, are very non-ideological. That is, we typically don't think of there being sort of this left-right dimension to local politics. Um, so I would say that our main findings are that without any additional information, there's a large group of voters in local elections that can't bring their policy views to bear on their candidate choices. That is, absent information, there's a lot of voters who can't choose candidates whose policy views are similar to their own. However, what our study finds is that if you can get different types of information to these voters, that they can, in fact, bring their policy views to bear in these elections. That is, they can choose candidates whose policy views are more similar to their own. Both simple cues like partisanship and more substantive information like voter guides can both help voters. We study two types of information in this study. We study sort of what are traditional shortcuts, like political party endorsements, which are also referred to as party cues. And then we study sort of more detailed substantive information, like nonpartisan voter guides, which kind of gives very detailed substantive information about candidates' policy views. And I think what the conventional wisdom would suggest is that these easier-to-use party cues, which are shortcuts, are going to outweigh the substantive information contained in the voter guide. But we actually find that that's not the case. So we find that, first of all, both party cues and nonpartisan voter guides convey important ideological information to voters about where candidates stand on policy issues. But we also find that when voters are given both of them, 
that they actually use the substantive information, even when it conflicts with their own party's recommendation. And so I think that's counter to the conventional wisdom, because I think the conventional wisdom would say, oh, people are just going to rely on these easier to use party endorsements, which are shortcuts, they're simpler, they take less effort to use. And what we find is that people can actually use and are willing to use the more substantive, detailed information about candidates' policy views. They study a supervisorial election in San Francisco, where there is no partisan divide, but there is a divide over issues. San Francisco has a real ideological divide between so-called progressives and so-called moderates. So this is San Francisco. So everybody's a Democrat, um, or virtually everybody's a Democrat. Almost all of the candidates are Democrats. The majority of voters are Democrats. But there's real ideological differences in the city when it comes to local issues. So, for example, progressives and moderates disagree about what you should do about the homeless. Progressives in recent years have favored giving cash grants to the homeless in order to help them get by, whereas moderates tend to favor services. This is San Francisco, so of course nobody thinks that we shouldn't do anything to help the homeless. But there's a real ideological disagreement about what exactly should be done. Boudreaux thinks the results would not generalize to a national partisan race, but there are quite a few races where voters lack clear partisan choices. I don't think these results tell us much about presidential or even congressional elections where you have a Democrat running against a Republican and where Democrats and Republicans have different policy views. Because that's really not what our setting is about. But what I think our results do generalize to are other big city elections or even primary elections where you have ideological differences among elites and among voters um, or candidates and voters, but where you don't have differences in partisanship. So when you have a nonpartisan context like ours, but you have real ideological differences. Voters that got a partisan endorsement usually went along with the party, but also aligned their views with a candidate. Those who got the voter guide just aligned their views with the candidate. And those who were told that where they stand relative to the candidates on a visual ideological spectrum also connected their positions to those of the candidates. We find that this so-called spatial map, as we call it, is also quite effective at strengthening the link between voters and candidates' policy views, and that the effects are similar to the effects of the voter guide and the political party endorsements, except unlike the political party endorsements, but like the nonpartisan voter guide, there's not this ideological shift toward one of the candidates. The results were much more important for voters who did not know much about local government, because voters who already knew a lot already connect their views to candidates. What we find is that there are, in fact, some, some high-knowledge voters. And for these voters, the information that we provide in our experiment doesn't have much of an effect on their decisions. And I think that's because they're already informed. They don't need the information as much. The information probably isn't new to them. And actually, when you look at these people who score well on our knowledge battery, they're doing pretty well absent information. So there's a, there's a group of voters out there who can already do it, even in a supervisorial election, which I think is pretty remarkable. So for these voters, there's a strong relationship between their policy views and the candidates that they choose, even absent information. Some voters were told both the Democratic Party's position and where they stood relative to the candidates. Surprisingly, those whose views did not match the party went along with their own views rather than those of the party they support. For these voters who experience a conflict, there's a lot of them that follow the ideological information contained in the spatial map over their party's position. So instead of following their party's endorsement, they tend to choose the candidate whose 
policy positions are closer to their own and that this is conveyed in the spatial map. Boudreaux says many voters do want to make decisions based on their issue positions, but they need the information. If voters have real issue positions, which they do in our context, and if they want to bring them to bear, which our study also suggests, it's sort of problematic if they can't do it. And absent information, our study suggests there's a large group that can't do it. For political professionals, Boudreaux says the results suggest they need to ask the candidates clear questions and get the information to voters. So I think one of the main challenges is, first of all, figure out a way to actually get candidates, particularly for lower level offices that don't have long voting records or much media coverage of their policy views, find a way to pin down, pin them down in their policy positions. And then second, you need to be able to package this information for voters in a useful way. But there may be a disconnect between how people think about their issue positions and how they feel about taking action in the political arena. Nicholas Haas and Rebecca Morton's new study compares express views with decisions about which interest groups to support. In most large surveys, people are asked to explain how they feel about certain issues, typically on a Likert uh, scale where they're asked, how much do you agree or disagree with this issue? And we were concerned that in this low stake context, where people can say that they hold strong views without any type of material cost associated, and on issues about which they may be uh, uninformed, this method may not adequately capture individuals' underlying preferences and their ideologies. And so the goal of this study was to compare this survey method that's so typically used uh, with a new one, where we had people decide how to divide $1.50 between two interest groups, with diametrically opposed uh, stances on, on the issue at hand. And so we wanted to know, does asking survey questions really capture individuals' underlying preferences or ideologies? And we had three main takeaways. So the first takeaway was that asking people how they felt about issues did a pretty good job capturing their preferences. So we think that's good news. We think it's important. The survey method is not only widely used, but it's also less expensive to conduct than is the method that we compared it against. However, we had two main caveats. So the first one was that we found that while the survey method did a pretty good job overall, it did not do a good job equally well at capturing everyone's preferences. So uh, Democrats specifically, their ideal points or their ideologies as we measure them shifted to the left under the donation method. And this was particularly true for politically engaged Democrats. Further, wealthy Democrats and male Republicans moved to the right. So we did find some important differences depending on whether individuals' preferences were elicited using survey responses or using our donation method. And second, our second caveat was that we felt that some of the choices we made may have diminished potential differences between the Likert method and between our donation method. And so this is something that we're going to explore. They gave people the same issue questions in a similar format, but with different tasks. So the key was to make everything as comparable as possible, except for how we elicited individuals' preferences. So to this end, we elicited the same individuals' preferences on the same 10 issues using two different methods, either the standard survey responses measured on a Likert scale, or using a donation exercise wherein individuals were forced to divide $1.50 in increments of 25 cents between interest groups with these diametrically opposed policy preferences. And we actually implemented one of each subject's decisions and allowed them to verify that we did as we said we did, as we said we would, 
It was very important issues. Did a pretty good job capturing their preferences. So we think that's good news. We think it's important. The survey method is not only widely used, but it's also less expensive to conduct than is the method that we compared it against. However, we had two main caveats. So the first one was that we found that while the survey method did a pretty good job overall, it did not do a good job equally well at capturing everyone's preferences. So uh, Democrats specifically, their ideal points or their ideologies, as we measure them, shifted to the left under the donation method. And this was particularly true for politically engaged Democrats. Further, wealthy Democrats and male Republicans moved to the right. So we did find some important differences depending on whether individuals' preferences were elicited using survey responses or using our donation method. And second, our second caveat was that we felt that some of the choices we made may have diminished potential differences between the Likert method and between our donation method. And so this is something that we're going to explore. They gave people the same issue questions in a similar format, but with different tasks. So the key was to make everything as comparable as possible, except for how we elicited individuals' preferences. So to this end, we elicited the same individuals' preferences on the same 10 issues using two different methods, either the standard survey responses measured on a Likert scale or using a donation exercise wherein individuals were forced to divide $1.50 in increments of 25 cents between interest groups with these diametrically opposed policy preferences. And we actually implemented one of each subject's decisions and allowed them to verify that we did as we said we did, as we said we would, it was very important to us that they, that they believe us. So we, show, we chose issues with three aims in mind. So first, we wanted disagreement along the ideological spectrum so, so we could capture ideological differences that existed. Second, we wanted to cover multiple policy areas, so not only economic or social. We wanted our definition of, of what made a conservative a conservative not to only be based on uh, economic issues, but also social issues. And third, we wanted our questions to be comparable to other studies on preference elicitation. People were given information about the interest group's positions and asked to split a donation between them. Before asking subjects to split the $1.50, we shared each group's policy stance on the issue. We took this directly from their statement so that we weren't editorializing responses. And for the analysis, what we did is we put donations, uh, donation responses and Likert responses on one to seven scales. They then compared citizens' positions based on the two formats. In the case of Likert elicitation, we have a scale ranging from strong disagreement with the stance to strong agreement. And for the donation elicitation, we have a one to seven scale from zero dollars to, for example, the conservative group and one dollar and fifty cents, which is the full amount they could allocate to the conservative group to the conservative group. And what we're interested in doing is we're interested in comparing how these methods, the donation elicitation or the Likert elicitation, result in either different or similar measures along this one to seven scale on the same issues. They expected that having real money on the line might reduce polarization, but Haas says it was more complicated. One of the strengths of it is that it is behavior, right, as opposed to stated preferences. We think it gets closer at, at revealed preferences. But the real question that we were interested in is uh, exactly what is it what are these survey responses telling us? Are they telling us what we think they're telling us when we say they mean that there's increased polarization? What type of polarization is there really? 
they found interesting evidence that while active Democrats may be more extreme in their donation activity than their expressed opinions, rich Democrats, those with the money to give, gave more moderately on economic issues. One thing we found was that wealthy Democrats were much more likely to be categorized as conservative when we use the donation method as compared with the survey response method. And we thought that that might be consistent with a social desirability story. The idea there is that people want to be seen as giving a certain answer. So if you're Democratic, you're a Democratic voter, and you care about what other Democrats think of you, and you think that Democrats uh, tend to be more generous, they tend to at least espouse policies that increase social welfare, increase the size of the welfare state, that you might want to be seen as being generous. And so you want to be seen as pro-redistributive, and you might say that in a Likert survey response. But then when you're actually asked to donate to a group that will increase taxes on people in your own income bracket, that maybe you actually moderate your opinion a little bit. For some issues, they had more trouble aligning groups to positions. For some issues, it was fairly straightforward, as you say. So there were some issues where there are well-known interest groups that are really focused on that one issue. A good example is guns. So for the donation decision in the uh, for the guns issue, we had people decide between the NRA and the Coalition to Stop Gun Violence. Another very clear decision was uh, on abortion. We had them choose between NARAL Pro-Choice America and the National Right to Life Committee. Uh, things that were a little bit harder were issues like equal pay. So it wasn't easy to find an interest group that was only focused as be on, on being against legislation to promote equal pay. We did, for example, in, in this case, find some essays and the official stance of the American Enterprise Institute that indicated they would be against legislation to promote equal pay. And they found bigger differences for issues without obvious groups lining up on each side. On some issues, really where Republicans and Democrats have drawn really clear lines in the sand if we think about abortion or we think about guns, and also where there are well-known interest groups that have drawn those kinds of lines in the sand, we did not see much of a difference between the Likert and the donational elicitation uh, uh, methods. For example, on the issue of equal pay, we saw that most Democrats and Republicans supported equal pay in the Likert elicitation, but there was much more separation in the donation elicitation. And so you know, there are multiple interpretations of, of why this could be the case, but we do see that Republicans do become more polarized in the donation elicitation on equal pay. Uh, and it's definitely an issue where maybe, you know, Democrats spe uh, speak more openly about how there needs to be more legislation to support equal pay, but Republicans certainly are not out there making as a, as a key part of their platform being against equal pay. And so uh, that was one, one area where we saw large differences in uh, Likert versus donation elicitation. Another area is, is welfare. So we saw much more uh, polarized responses in the donation elicitation than in the, the Likert elicitation. So where do we go from here? Boudreaux's research is designed to figure out how democracy can work when people start out with such low information. So my broader research agenda is focused on whether voters can make decisions that are in line with their interests. And so 
can voters who don't know very much about politics, who can't name their senator, who don't know how many members there are on the Supreme Court, who don't know what's going on in current events. Um, we call on these voters to make very important decisions by electing candidates in our representative democracy, by making decisions on ballot initiatives in states with direct democracy. And the question is, well, you know, the question that my research is, is interested in is, well, how can these uninformed voters, how can democracy work if these people are so uninformed that they, that they are making these decisions that they're not very informed about? She says one problem might be that some voters just aren't interested in learning more. Some types of voters are going to be more interested in receiving this information than others. And so I think the big open question is, how do you get this, how do you get voters to use this information? And I think that's something that we're going to pursue in, in future research. Haas says they see at least some evidence that moderate interest groups might be able to generate support or that people might want to see groups fighting on both sides. We do think there's hope, even if we're looking at a very polarized reality. And our measures under both methods did suggest that there's high polarization. One thing we did not consider in the paper that we do in, a, in another project is in what cases people would prefer centrist interest groups to interest groups uh, either on the left or on the right. So in this case, they just had to decide between one on the left, on the right, but maybe there are more opportunities for, for moderates than we've identified in this study when we do include a third option. And then also we do think that there's some suggestive evidence that some partisan groups that may appear to be highly polarized in survey responses, that maybe there are opportunities actually for centrist groups to appeal to them. For example, this finding that wealthy Democrats move to the right under the donational elicitation method as compared with the Likert method, we think maybe that signals that centrist groups could appeal to them. Boudreaux is optimistic. She says voters just need to be given the right information to make their views actionable. Voter ignorance is a solvable problem. There's decades of research that have lamented how little citizens know about politics. But what I think this study and my broader research agenda, agenda suggests is that there are solutions that are out there that can work. And there's groups that are interested in coming up with these solutions. And what my research studying the effects of these kinds of information suggests is that, that they can be quite effective even among people who don't know very much about politics. There's a lot more to learn. Political Research Digest is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center and on iTunes. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. Thanks to Cheryl Boudreaux and Nicholas Haas for joining me. Join us next time to find out how the Tea Party laid the groundwork for the rise of Donald Trump. <laughs>